Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome back to episode number 104 of History for Weirdos. And happy October. Happy October, happy spooky season, and happy History for Weirdos spooky episode season. <laughs> oh my God, that's a mouthful right I there. I know. I was trying to think of a word other than season, and then I didn't, <laughs> clearly. But yeah, to your point, uh, for those of you who may not know, during the month of October, we're going to try to focus on like spookier themed episodes yes we even asked on instagram for recommendations so if you don't follow us on instagram here's a reminder to do so yes exactly shameless plug shameless I love plug. It. i thought you were gonna share the instagram handle oh instagram is at history for weirdos <laughs> we we're professionals we are professionals we know what it. we're doing but um we're just really happy to be here and to share some spookier episodes like we said and then even eventually at the beginning of November, we're going to be doing a special episode on the history of Dia de los Muertos. Yeah, that's how we're going to wrap up this whole thing. So yes. It's going to be a wild ride. October is always special for History for Weirdos. Yeah. So uh, just strap in your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. Also, we're both reading really interesting books, and I wanted to share them with you all yeah. because I think you guys would resonate. And they're very different, both historical. Yes. So, Stephanie, why don't you tell us about the book you're reading? I am reading a book that my younger brother, hi, Tommy, gifted me. He doesn't listen to this. <laughs> gifted me. That's rude of him. <laughs> yeah. He went off to college. He is in Boston. We will be visiting him soon. So also, you'll probably see some like historical Boston content on Instagram soon. Um, he gave me Killers of the Flower Moon. And that film is coming out really soon this month, I think, October 20th. Right. It is so good, so interesting and heavy, but important at the same time. Killers of the Flower Moon has to do with a series of murders of people of the Osage Nation. And it is a historical book. It takes place in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And... The book, though, I, I've heard amazing things about the movie. We're definitely going to see it. The book is incredible because I was just telling Andrew that even though the author wrote this book, I think in like 2016, it reads, one, as a fiction book, even though it's a historical book. It's historically reporting on these cases and the lives of the Osage people. And two, I would think that the author personally knew everyone he's talking about. So he's an incredible author. He's an incredible writer. The details make you feel like you're there. And it's just, it's history that we did not learn as American citizens in school that's so important. It's not just about the murders, although those are so important and like pivotal in the story. It really is about the history of the Osage people. And then you learn a lot about the history of how Native Indigenous Americans were treated in general. It's so good. I cannot say enough good things. And I'm only on like chapter five and I'm in love with the book. Oh, nice. Awesome. How about you, babe? Well, 
a little different. Mine's called Rome and Persia, mm-hmm. and it details the 700-year history between the Roman Empire, or Roman Republic at first, and the Parthian, and then later Sassanid empires, which are... I mean, take place in, you know, those those empires were headquartered around modern day Iran and Iraq. Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of like successor states to uh, the Hellenistic Seleucid Empire. And even before that, the Achaemenid Persians. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's very rich in history. This these two empires mm-hmm. are right. And uh, it's really interesting because more of the sources from, from ancient times comes from Rome. Yeah. We have a lot of writing from Rome, and but not as much from Parthia and then later Sassanid Persia. And so it's a little bit more, I think, not biased necessarily, but, but more inform- yeah, information heavy on the Roman side. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting because I'm just obsessed with ancient Rome. And at their height, especially towards like starting the first century BC is when this it, you know, the story kind of takes place. Rome's like on the ascendancy and so is uh, the, so is the Parthian empire. And so you see these two just massive conglomerates really, mm-hmm. and they have no other peers besides mm-hmm. themselves. Everyone else is like a weaker, either client kingdom state or even, you know, what the Romans would consider barbarians. Does that foster kind of like a love hate relationship between the two? Yes, because there is definitely some, what I, call like Mm co-option which is like cooperation and competition at the same time oh i like that and you know a lot of times it come it you know you have full-blown wars between Mm -hmm. the two empires right uh but as but there's also incredibly important like trade routes that like go through um parthia and persia and to china Mm -hmm. and especially in the first century a.d silk was it's first and second century. I mean, really just like starting in the first century, moving onwards, silk was super important to Rome and it, you could only get there through China. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, like, and it's just so interesting because guys like 700 years is an insane amount of time. You're going from like pre Jesus Christ, you know, era all the way to like when Rome is like the Western Roman empire has already fallen. Like Christianity has dominated the Mediterranean now for, you know, centuries but yet, you know, you still have this empire that has just been, you know, going strong. And then the same with Persia. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's two, technically two different empires. But anyways, I could go on about this all day. We're going to get in, straight into the story. Um, <laughs> no, it's okay. And you should mention that that book was gifted to us. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So it was gifted to us from basic books. Um, they yeah. also gave us another book on Roman history. So yeah. And I'll read that shortly after. Yeah. So thank you, basic books. <laughs> yeah. You guys are awesome. Okay. Enough about me blathering about ancient Rome because we could be here all day. <laughs> Stephanie, why don't you tell us your story for today? Yeah, of course. So I'm excited. This one is not spooky in the traditional sense, but I think people who appreciate spooky season will appreciate this topic. Okay. I'm, I'm interested. All right. So picture this is the 19th century and Queen Victoria is ruling the British empire with impeccable fashion sense, right? Fashion is very big in the Victorian era, but even hotter than corsets and crinoline at this time, Mm -hmm. tuberculosis. So you're going to have to explain this. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of shying away from this deadly disease, Victorian society did something really peculiar. They highly romanticized tuberculosis and made it a trend. It was kind of like the OG influencer of the era because it affected everything from fashion to literature to art of the time. 
And today we're going to be learning all about the Victorian era's tuberculosis trend. This is so insane. This makes like heroin chic of the 90s look like it's not that big of a deal. Yes, that's a really good comparison. That's a good comparison to keep in mind during this episode, actually. (laughs) My God. So people have always been stupid. (laughs) It's not just a recent phenomenon. It's just like with social media, it's more of in our face. Yeah, I'd say that's a really good interpretation. I think fashion trends can be reckless, dangerous even, kind of like nonsensical. Monumentally um, stupid. Monumentally stupid, and it's something to keep your eye out for, for sure. <laughs> That's good to know. But before we jump into the trend where I kind of break down how it came about and what that looked like, I'm going to give us some of the history and science of the disease itself, because that's really important to understand. So it's estimated that myobacterium tuberculosis, that's the scientific name, may have been around for as long as 3 million years. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. TB, uh, what tuberculosis is also called TB, was called thysis in ancient Greece and tabes in ancient Rome and scapateth in ancient Hebrew. So wow. all of these ancient cultures wrote about people being infected with the disease. Okay. In the 1700s, TB was called the white plague due to the paleness of the patients. That's like a hallmark of the, the sickness. And then it was also commonly called consumption in the 1800s because it appeared as though the disease was slowly consuming you. Wow. Yeah. So uplifting. So uplifting. But before they discovered the bacteria that causes TB, they had a lot of weird ideas about the disease, of course. Of course. One was that it was thought to be hereditary, which I think is really interesting. That, that like, is strange. If your mom had TB, you'd probably get TB at some point. And then in the Middle Ages, treatment for scofula, which is what it was called then, and the plague of TB during the Middle Ages specifically impacted the lymph nodes in the neck. Mm. That was healed by royal touch oh my god this meant that people would line up in english and in front of their english and french kings specifically kings and queens hoping that the sovereign would touch them resulting in a cure oh my god it did not wow (laughs) really it likely just led to further spread of the disease oh my god that's (laughs) Very accurate. Some other remedies at the time, or throughout history, I should say, in Europe for the disease include cod liver oil, vinegar massages, stinky massages, and inhaling hemlock, which is a highly poisonous flower, or inhaling turpentine, also poisonous. These were all treatments for TB around the 1800s. It's insane to me how much medical like progress has happened the last like 150 years. Yeah. Could you imagine like, hey, I know this flower typically kills people, but what happens if we just like breathe it in a lot every day? Do you think that'll make us better? I mean, (laughs) I really want to understand the logic behind a lot of these things. It makes no sense. Yeah. Things like, I guess like cod liver oil, like drinking that or having like a vinegar massage, they're harmless. So it's fine. I guess you could think like maybe the vinegar gets the disease out of your body. Yeah. Right? Because it's, it's acidic. Right. It's, a, it's used for cleaning. But inhaling poison, how's that going to make you better? Yeah, exactly. 
it's interesting because like you'll see a lot of like remedies that have that are you know medieval ancient or whatnot th that like still work and you're like wow like they, they were so advanced so then you hear things like this and you're like wow okay never mind <laughs> never mind sometimes it may have just been dumb luck <laughs> yeah. that they got it right i know so also during the 1800s there were vampire panics yep throughout um the new england region in the u.s and so when a TB outbreak occurred in town, it was suspected that the first family member to die would come back a vampire to infect the rest of the family. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. They, how did they not think like, oh, like John died of TB and then like a few days later, so did his sister and his mom. How did they not think like maybe it was because they lived together? Maybe because they're hanging out with each other. Yeah, like they were kind of close with like the bad air. Like you were mm -hmm. like you're close. You're not quite there, but you're getting there. You're like you're getting there. That was a very prevalent uh, theory, not only for TB but for disease in general. Right. Was this idea that bad air would make you sick? Which is I'll get into some other solutions later. Often involve like going to the seaside mm -hmm. for good air. Um, they're close, like you said, because it is transmitted that way. But, oh, you know, the vampire theory yeah. really throws them off. <laughs> yeah. To stop the vampires, townspeople would dig up oh my a suspected vampire's grave and perform a ritual. Um, but this somehow didn't stop the spread of the disease. Wow, really? Yeah, people would still get sick and die. Huh. Go figure. <laughs> Go figure. But then on March 24th, 1882, Dr. Robert Koch announced the discovery of Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the bacteria that causes TB. At this point, tuberculosis had reached epidemic levels in both Europe and the United States. So this is a big, big breakthrough. But as is typical with scientific breakthroughs, even though the scientific community became aware of the cause, most everyday people didn't have that information. Right. It's not like it trickled like to them like super quickly. No. Like this is probably over the course of decades. It takes a very long time. Yeah. So in a time without antibiotics, victims of tuberculosis would slowly waste away. The symptoms included becoming very pale uh, very being very feverish, a high, running a high fever was a common symptom, losing a lot of weight and coughing, coughing up blood, and then ultimately dying of consumption. Lovely. In the 18th and 19th centuries, TB had a mortality rate as high as 900 deaths per 100,000 per year in Western Europe. This included big cities like London, Stockholm, and Hamburg. And until the discovery of antibiotics, treatment for TB was, if not weird stuff, like the normal stuff would be like, oh, we should keep them warm. They should rest. They should breathe better air, things like that. Mm -hmm. They really didn't have a lot to combat the disease. It really would just like kill you. you away. Yeah, it was kind of a bit of a death sentence. Antibiotics would be a major breakthrough. But that doesn't happen until 1943. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of time. Yes. Oof. Today, scientists and medical professionals, thankfully, understand that bacteria that causes TB is spread when an infected person coughs, sneezes, speaks, or even sings in front of other people. Mm -hmm. So it is transmitted through air in some way, but not the way they thought. Right. 
Most people infected with the bacteria that causes tuberculosis actually don't show symptoms. When symptoms do occur, they usually include the cough, sometimes blood tinged, but not always, the weight loss, night sweats, fever. And if you don't have those symptoms, you may or may not need treatment. Um, I, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how they determine that. <laughs> but if you do have symptoms, you definitely need treatment. And it is actually a really long-term use of multiple antibiotics. Oh, no. It's Today we use four drugs to treat TB. I can't say them, so I'm not going to. These Fair. are very confusing. But this four-drug cocktail has been the standard treatment since the 1950s, and it's what we use today still. Okay. So we haven't made a ton of progress in terms of how we treat it. Since then, at least. But now that we know a bit more about tuberculosis, let's get back to the Victorian era, where TB played a major role in influencing beauty standards, specifically beauty standards for women. The (laughs) ideal look as a result of TB for a woman was to be very pale, very thin, with bright red cheeks that would mimic a fever. This is a stark contrast, obviously, to the super tan super strong fit look that we're interested in today yes um and tb was seen as a way to acquire a romantic and ethereal appearance interesting Mm -hmm. people would go to extreme lengths to look paler applying arsenic powder to their faces arsenic is also poisonous and consuming arsenic wafers, kind of like crackers. Oh my God, it literally poison. Yeah. To achieve this kind of sickly Victorian ghost appearance. Oh my God. Yeah, a pallid complexion alone was the ultimate symbol of refinement and sophistication. Even early photography was all about capturing that kind of ethereal consumptive beauty, is what they called it. Consumptive. Consumptive beauty. (laughs) It's kind of funny, actually. Photographers used soft lighting and props like a chaise lounge and shawls to create this image of like a soft, demure, sickly woman posing for photos. Wow. (laughs) Andrew's face is very disturbed. I'm incredibly disturbed. It wasn't just about the look of TB, though. Having tuberculosis was like the best thing ever because people saw you as more mysterious and hot and oh you're so sick that's so hot yeah it was very I, alluring i oh my god i i just you keep on going okay i have i'm literally at a loss for words here it helped portray this image of a frail and delicate person, especially, again, for women. That was very appealing to men, this thought that she's so helpless and sensitive that she has TB is really attractive. It, it says a lot about how society and how men viewed women mm, at the time, right? Yeah. They want someone that's, I'm going to say it, they want someone that has, is weak, weakened yeah literally weakened by disease is the ideal wife to get Mm. as long as yeah she doesn't talk that much it's probably good (laughs) she's too busy coughing up blood (laughs) (laughs) score Score. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then it didn't it it didn't help, I guess, that a lot of famous people contracted TB. So it made it kind of like, oh my god, like Kim Kardashian has tuberculosis. I want to have tuberculosis vibes. Jesus. Like like were they like the actors or like the performers of the time? You know what's interesting is it was the writers. Oh, there you go. The writers were like the hot stuff of the time. This era is known for its very prolific writers that were popular in their time as well. So writers would either contract TB or they would write about uh, characters with TB. And it contributed to this kind of like poetic glamour that was associated with the disease. Interesting. For example, the British romantic poet John Keats was known for his fascination with death and dying. He actually took care of his mom at a young age um, because when she was 14, he contra- she contracted TB and was slowly dying of it. And he took care of her Aww. until she died. So some of his best poems, such as Ode to a Nightingale, which I'm sure many of us, I know I did, read this in English class in high school. Ode to a Nightingale or Ode to Melancholy were reflections on the anxiety of human mortality. He wow. kind of, he's kind of like really romanticizes death, but is also very fearful of it. Okay. Which makes sense when you think of his background. Right. His poems weren't well received at first by the other poets of his time. In fact, Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, who we talk about in a previous episode, were like kind of bitchy about his writing <laughs> they were bitchy that's funny they wrote like mean bitchy letters about it back and forth to each other they had made fun of him Well, wow. their lives must have been pretty small for the yeah because keats at some point goes to shelley i think trusting him and being like i'm such a big fan like what do you think of my work and then right. shelley i think he writes to byron like oh his writing's basically like mental masturbation Wow, that's so rude. And I'm like, dude, as someone who loves poetry, isn't all poetry that? Like, you could argue that for any poetry. Yeah. It's so not nice. He might have been threatened. I think so, because despite their criticisms, he did begin to receive success from the public. People liked his poems. So he could have just been jealous. Right. And I guess at the end of the day, that's the thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if your work resonates with... People. other people mm-hmm. but unfortunately by 1820 keats began to experience some shortness of breath no or and yes yeah. i don't know people were weird back then <laughs> yeah i don't know how to react <laughs> <laughs> yes i guess if you were a victorian person you'd be like yes nice going <laughs> but for us we'd be like oh no he also started having some lung hemorrhaging and it turns out he had tuberculosis his doctors advised him to take an ocean voyage. Oh, my God. That was the medicine. This was a very common prescription that doctors made for sickly young men, not women. Women should not be going on ocean voyages. I mean, that's way too dangerous. Yeah. Right? Agreed. But young men in the 19th century were traveling to get better, to escape essentially the dank, cold British winters. Right. So he set sail for Rome. Ah, That's lucky. a good idea. That's a right? great idea unfortunately oh no that boat people got like there was like a cholera outbreak no (laughs) and so he's just surrounded by sick people like stuck on this boat so he has tb people around him have cholera yeah 
He's not getting any sort of treatment. And as a result of his untreated consumption, his lungs are destroyed. And he begins coughing up a lot of blood. Oh, no. Regarding the bleeding, Keats actually wrote in his journal, quote, I know the color of that blood. I cannot be deceived in that color. That drop of blood is my death warrant. I must die. Oh, I know. They saw the, I mean, he saw his mom die of the disease. Yeah, that's. So he knew like, and he probably knew it was close. Right. Like that's scary. The mm-hmm. fact that you've seen someone that you love die from this and then you get it. Yeah. It's just like, okay, well, okay, I guess this is the end. And it, it's cases like this that led credence to the theory like, oh, it's hereditary then. Right. But it's not. No, it's not. No, it my is friend. not. <laughs> Keats sadly passed away of tuberculosis on February 23rd, 1821. And he was only 25 years old. Man, I was really hoping that he would make a comeback, that he would beat it. I know. I mean, because some people did. Right, exactly. He was 25, so same age as Tupac. Same age as Tupac. And his untimely death added to the poet's public perception of being kind of like this tragic artistic figure, and he became even more popular. So just like Tupac. Just like Tupac. Very similar people. Yeah. And then going back to Byron, he was a very scandalous, very famous poet who must have been very jealous when he heard that Keats died of tuberculosis because he once said to a friend, quote, how pale I look. I should like, I think, to die of consumption because then women would all say, see that poor Byron, how interesting he looks in dying, end quote. (laughs) I'm just staring at Stephanie right now, like shaking my head. It's so, so silly. I also want to note that he's the father of Ada Lovelace. Yes. The mathematician that was covered in a previous episode. Woohoo! So if you haven't heard that one, go ahead and listen after this. I think this look that people were going for, the they're, it's actually often associated with Byron because he wrote a lot of characters that were like kind of dark and sick and sensitive and delicate. Right. It's known as the Byronic hero, which is like a sub-sect of the romantic hero Yes. in writing of this time. I think a really good way for modern people to understand the look that they were going for is to just picture Timothy Chalamet. That's the exact vibe. Doesn't he look like a sickly Victorian ghost? He kind of does, actually. He's very gaunt. Mm-hmm. Very, very pale. Like, pale mm-hmm. Just kind of like... And mysterious kind of brooding. Yes. I think he's actually, in interviews, he's very silly and animated. Right. Which is fun. But I think the look he gives, especially in like the red carpet, is like brooding and yes. dark. Like, oh, like you you have a like a terminal illness. And you're you're a chronic haunt- illness. And you're haunting my manor. Yeah, And exactly. that's really hot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's basically the look that people were going for. People are very strange. I will just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. People are weirdos, which is why we have a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And then both Emily and Anne Bronte, the Bronte, two of the Bronte sisters died of TB. And these are the Bronte sisters. So cool. I could probably do a whole episode on them. A female group of sisters who are really well-known writers of their time. Right. Um, They were very popular. And this again, led the public to further believe that just being like, quote, sensitive made you more susceptible to tb since these ladies wrote about very like 
romantic, dark, sensitive topics. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So they're like, oh, it's because they're so artistic. They died. That's big brain thinking right there. (laughs) But in reality, it was probably the fact that they lived together with their brother who had contracted the disease first that led to them getting sick and dying. Imagine us just like going back in time being like, no, you idiots. This is literally what this means. (laughs) Their minds would be one blown (laughs) or more than likely most people would not believe us. I think we would be ignored. Yeah, we absolutely would be ignored, which is insane because we'd be like, no, we're from the future. Like you guys are idiots. Like you're completely wrong. And then they would just be like, nope. Most people really love when you call them idiots. And tell them that they're wrong. <laughs> it make, goes over well, right? Yeah, they're like, I really want to listen to you. <laughs> I want to hear what this guy has to say. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, he's called me an idiot. He must be right. He must be right. And then the death of my beloved, Jane Austen. My beloved. Everyone's beloved. I mean, she. let's just be real. She died over 100 years before you were born. She's my best friend. Jane Austen has long been shrouded in mystery. The iconic author died in 1817 and she was pretty young too. She was only 41 and it was at the time like an unidentified disease, but over the years, scholars have speculated that it was likely tuberculosis. Okay. I think she just didn't have the coughing blood part. And so people didn't identify it at the time, but it was, she was sick for a really long time. And again, people are like, oh my God, it's because she's a lady writer, you know? Yeah, so mysterious. So mysterious. And then artistic portrayals of TB include Puccini's La Boheme, Hugo's Le Miserable, and even a modern day example is in Moulin Rouge, when the love interest Satine in the movie played by um, Nicole Kidman, Nicole right? Kidman She's a gorgeous and elusive performer who is dying of consumption throughout the movie. Yes, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Ewan McGregor, he's the the love interest, the male. He's the guy, yeah, yeah, and he's like super depressed after. I think he dies at the end. I don't remember. It was so long ago. I think, I think so. I think we, everyone dies. We watched that recently, and we were kind of disappointed. It, it didn't really hold up that well. It was weird. Yeah, I didn't... Not in the fun way. Yeah, I didn't particularly enjoy that movie. I wonder if we would enjoy a theater performance of it more. I feel like the movie was trying too hard. It was... Yeah, it was like early 2000s, incredibly campy. Really campy. Over the top campy. And really cheesy, like bad CGI. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. That's also... So I think that was distracting. It was. If you all like Moulin Rouge, let us know. Let us know if it's worth going to see. So, as a result of these pop culture examples, people people even admired those who are suffering from TB because it meant that they were really deep. Oh my god. And they had poetic sensibilities. Isn't that cool? Illness in general became a symbol of sensitivity and even luxury because upper class folks who were sick could afford to go to seaside towns or retreats to get better. The idea of this retreat into nature to lift one's spirits ultimately inspired the rise of sanatoriums. Oh, lovely. Which I mentioned in a previous episode on Starvation Heights. Right. Yeah, you did. Which is a sanatorium nightmare. That's not what most sanatoriums were supposed to be like. (laughs) That was like the worst possible case of a sanatorium ever. You weren't supposed to be locked up with a crazy lady who was trying to starve you to death and rob you. Yeah. That wasn't the intention. 
So let's do a quick recap on sanatoriums for maybe those who don't know. This is where TB patients were treated. Um, and it was like essentially the hottest and most exclusive vacation spot you could go to. Wealthy folks would flock to these health resorts, believing that breathing in fresh, clean air, as you pointed out, Andrew, of the countryside or the seaside would cure all their ills. It was similar to going to like a spa getaway today. Yeah. Sanatoriums were often beautifully designed and located in picturesque settings, making them the perfect place for rich people to escape poor people and rejuvenate their spirits. It is interesting that like how they're kind of close, but they're still missing the mark completely. <laughs> like it's like, okay, like for your mental health, yes. Like a break taking idea. a break. Yeah, exactly. Meditating kind of they they didn't like meditate the way we do because Eastern philosophy hadn't really influenced us yet, but this idea of like sitting in reflection, staring at, at trees. Yeah, right. that's good for you. Yeah, exactly. Like that's good for you, but you also if you have like a deadly disease you you need more than just that you need more than just <laughs> you need some serious medicine you need medicine that they didn't have and then oh, i guess yeah they didn't even understand i mean they didn't understand like wee beasties or bacteria yeah the wee beasties right they didn't know about those that's an outlander reference guys in case you didn't know yeah i think the best thing they could have done at the time would be to isolate the person with tuberculosis Right. Have them in quarantine so that the disease doesn't spread. And probably some of the more like tame interventions they did, which was like, oh, we should keep you in like a a dry, fairly warm place. Right. Because at this time, think a lot of homes, even even like wealthy homes would be damp. damp Yeah. Damp, dank. Drafty. Yes. Which is exactly where this bacteria thrives. Right. So you would need... And probably like a lot of herbal tea. I know the the, the Brits yeah. especially love their tea. So that if they just kept on having tea in like a warm, dry environment. Yeah. Some soup. They just need to go to Vegas. They need to be in <laughs> Vegas, sit in the desert. Vegas the didn't exist at this time, but you know. <laughs> the slot machines would cure them. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Especially yeah. with all the cigarette smoke. Oh, so good for your lungs. <laughs> yeah. They would have thrived. <laughs> <laughs> So let me tell you a little bit about what's going on with tuberculosis today. Oh, okay. Because tuberculosis is considered to be controlled in the U.S., but it's still a bigger threat than actually most people know. According to the CDC, there are an estimated 13 million people in the United States living with inactive TB. Okay. So like, yeah, the the TB that's not actually dangerous for you. The TB that's asymptomatic. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you could be spreading it to others. Exactly. And they could have symptomatic TB. Exactly. Mm -hmm. In my personal experience, um, for those who don't know, I used to work with veterans, uh, specifically homeless veterans. And I can say that the, the disease is very common amongst the homeless unhoused populations because they tend to seek refuge in shelters and shelters are a great place for TB to spread, especially in the winter. Yeah. Because it's a lot of people kind of packed in together that are damp um, and cold and coughing on each other. And so it's not uncommon for a lot of people with homelessness to develop TB, unfortunately. That is so sad. Yeah. And this is, it disproportionately impacts poor people, like people living in poverty not just in the U.S., but all over the world, obviously. Right. In 2021, an estimated 
10.6 million people fell ill with tuberculosis worldwide. That's so much more than I would think. That is because we have vaccines for tuberculosis, right? A TB? No, we no. do TB tests. Right. With the, you know, when you're gonna like w- go to school, or for me as a social worker, any job I've ever taken, you have to get the TB test and they prick you. Yeah. And if it bubbles, you're effed. If it doesn't bubble, you're good. We don't have a vaccine for it. That's just a test for it. Oh, okay. Our efforts are just those four antibiotics. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, I've also never met anyone in person that has had TB. I have. I know you have. Many yeah. times. <laughs> concerning. <laughs> or a history of TB. Um, so if like, for example, say you get that TB test and you get a little bubble, you, you probably had TB and you didn't know it, right? Right. You can still get cleared for like a living situation. Like when we were trying to help veterans get housed in a transitional housing, or if you're a teacher, you could still get a job. But the way they clear you is you have to do an x-ray of your lungs and the x-ray will show that you currently do not have tuberculosis. Right. And you can't pass it to other people. Like, I guess if your lungs were really like filled with fluid. Yeah. They fill it up with the blood. A blood. Even worse. Yeah. Then, you, you know. That's how you know, but, and then obviously the x-ray would also show, oh, you need antibiotics. This is more serious than, than we thought, but we don't have a vaccine for it. Um, the, the disease is essentially still an issue that we're battling. In fact, I recently saw John Green, the author post several TikToks about how he gave a speech to the UN on the importance of increasing the efforts to combat the disease because it's kind of fallen to the wayside. Right, and he's a writer, so he he's part of that whole Oh my like, god, you're right. <laughs> yeah. He's doing it to represent his sensitive people. Exactly. It's because they're sensitive, that's why they're getting tuberculosis. tuberculosis. <laughs> so he's trying to protect himself. Yeah, it's all just selfish <laughs> at the end of the day. I really hope John Crean listens to this podcast so much. I know. And that like, he can respond. Like, what the hell? <laughs> they can school us with the actual reason he cares. Yeah. No, that is the actual reason he cares. You believe that? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) He's trying to protect fellow writers from getting the disease. Right, exactly. Absolutely. Just self-serving. But if he was really big brain, he would let people get the disease and then there's less writers. Oh. (laughs) He's trying to get the competition out of the way. Yeah, exactly. I sound like one of those stupid vampires from like what we do in the shadows because they're just... Their ideas are just so dumb, but hilarious. That's another great personal update to share with the weirdos. We yes. have just gotten into the TV show, What We Do in the Shadows. And we've, we're already in like the fourth season. It's You didn't have to tell them that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just like exposed us. You didn't have to expose how much we've been binging it. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> I think it's a perfect weirdo show. If you have not watched it already and you are a weirdo, you'll love it. Yeah, and there's actually historical elements because they're all from like previous times, right? Yeah, there's so many historical references. Yeah, like the oldest vampire is, is, was like an Ottoman like mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. It's really funny. Yeah. it's It has historical references, but it's not smart. It's a dumb no, show. it's like a dumb show, but it's amazing. It's incredible. Like it's so... Anyways, okay. Yeah, you, you just... We just keep... We're, we'll get derailed if we keep on talking about that show. Check it out if you haven't. That's yeah. our final word on that. So... In hindsight, it's mind-boggling how something so deadly could be glorified and even coveted 
Right. Like Byron being like, I wish I could die of TB. That's so like metal. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what he said. But the Victorian era was a time of contradictions. I think that's why I keep coming to it. I keep maybe that's my Roman Empire, the Victorian era. It is 100% your Roman Empire. <laughs> Cuz it's so interesting that like societal norms and cultural values clashed in the most unexpected ways. Like right. I also talked about the rise of spiritualism at this yes. time when it was so highly Christian and conservative, but also everyone wanted to talk to the dead. I love it. I also want to point out that in order for your case of tuberculosis to be seen as fashionable, you had to be young, ethnically British or Western European, and rich, most importantly. Yeah. Most people who battled with this horrible disease did not have access to bougie sanatoriums and did not gain any social clout for being ill. Mm. If you were poor in TB, that was not the vibe. That wasn't trendy. <laughs> wow. So there's like, I feel like there's still some corollaries today. Like there are certain things that rich people can just get away with, but like just average folks can't. I 100% agree. I think an, an example that I have noticed is when a celebrity comes out and shares that they've been struggling with like a mental illness and people are like, wow, you're so brave. You're so cool for going to therapy. But if someone in your personal life shares that they have a severe mental illness, people get kind of like weird about it. Yeah, especially as a psychotherapist yourself, that must just really irk you. Yeah, it's still certain things that are stigmatizing for the masses are seen as exceptional right. for rich and famous people. You know, and it's funny, like in my kind of sphere, one thing that I think that pisses me off more than mm -hmm. anything is like, you know, people, disenfranchised people just getting food stamps, right? That's mm -hmm. like seen as just like garbage but like oh it's multi, very stigmatized yeah, yeah incredibly stigmatized but multi-billion dollar corporations get tax like write-offs and hand, even handouts from the government and sometimes in the millions or billions of dollars and it's billions of dollars and it's it's just seen as oh well they're just smart businessmen what yeah no it's not have anything to do with smart they're just literally just like leeching off of our taxpayer money exactly like it's it's just uh, that's such a great point why are there so many things where if you're rich it's seen as being smart or being better right and if you're not it's seen as low class i hate it yeah. it's so so messed up and it's something that we're still struggling with right today you'd think we're, we're, we're going over this like tuberculosis trend and i'm sharing it because it's so outlandish and weird and silly and we can laugh a little bit about it. But in some ways, we're no better. Exactly. It's I 100% agree. Like, I mean, there are stupid trends. And this, honestly, is, is dumber than most recent trends. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe the, the Tide Pod one was pretty dumb from, like, a few years back. Another one that I can think of that's more um, easy to equate is when lip fillers became trendy among celebrities but oh, right. they're really expensive and they were more expensive a few years ago like 10 years ago or so people were using like suctions to suction their lips to make them look poutier mm -hmm. but what it it was damaging their lips and their skin because it was uh bursting like capillaries oh wow so it's really dangerous and doctors were like please don't do this i don't remember how but basically like if you like put your lips inside like a glass bottle and well yeah don't tell people yeah, yeah. <laughs> people are they're not gonna do it but 
that was an example of like, oh, if rich people get lip fillers, that's cool. But if I try to get lips, it's like seen as stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that we came to this conclusion together because my next note is the trend of tuberculosis chic serves as a reminder to question beauty standards and who benefits from them. Exactly. Or consumption chic. Consumption chic. We got that alliteration right there. That rolls off the tongue bitter. Yeah. Scratch that. Consumption chic. (laughs) There we go, baby. So, weirdos, the next time you're sipping on your adaptogenic almond milk latte, (laughs) scrolling through TikToks on how to achieve a certain aesthetic, remember that the Victorian elite were sipping on arsenic powder (laughs) and celebrating their consumptive aesthetic. (laughs) And I have a question for the weirdos. Okay. You can answer this too if you think of one right now, Andrew. Got it. But I definitely want you all to let us know on the Instagram post for this. In a hundred years from now, what present day beauty trends will people be shocked to learn about? I think silicone implants for me. Oh, because people keep getting sick from them. Yeah, it's poison, like literal poison. Yeah, because the silicone leaks and yeah. Yeah, yeah that's one that they're, they may be shocked about. Like, why would they put this thing that could kill them inside their bodies? Right. I think that's going to be a big one. And again, like no like no shame or anything. No I just judgment. This is no judgment at all. I'm just thinking that's a hundred years from now. Like that's going to, that's the most, that was like the first thing that came to my mind. Yes. And I truly say this, no judgment. I love beauty interventions. Like if I had more funds, I would totally get more beauty interventions. It's just interesting to question these things. Right. Exactly. Like even like Botox, right? Like, yeah, it's we, a toxin. It's a toxin that we, that we put in and, I'm going to be completely honest. I've used it, right? Me it's too. actually, yeah. ironically, it's also a medicine for something I suffer from TMJ. And for migraines. And for migraines. It's a migraine treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but you know, it's also like a beauty standard where you're like inputting like poison into your body. Right. Right. It's so interesting. It is, right? And we see, especially in LA, I will say, oh, yeah. we see these things as very commonplace, very normal. Like, of course, instead of having laugh lines, you're going to put botox in your face yeah but that may be one that they question in a hundred years from now it's definitely possible (laughs) well weirdos that is my summary of the tuberculosis trend i literally had zero idea this was ever a thing really no i had never even heard of this oh i'm so glad i got to introduce you to it (laughs) yeah i mean it's not even something that was just like oh yeah i think i heard about that before no like i is completely brand new to me. So weirdos, if you knew about this before the episode, like hats off to you. This is, I feel like this is a deep cut. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I love those Victorian era deep cuts. I know this is a hundred percent your Roman empire. Like I'm not Why? even joking. I know my Roman empire is the Roman empire. Yeah. More, I'd say more the Roman Republic. If I'm being honest, talk about a deep cut. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> before we wrap up, I do want to share my sources. Okay. A lot of these are actually scientific. I'm very fancy this week. There's nice. this, the CDC, uh, Smithsonian Magazine, the National Institute of Health, the American Lung Association, Oxford Academic, a PBS article on how John Keats met his early end, the Saratoga Springs Public Library. That is adorable. Isn't that so cute? They had an article on... Uh, consumption romanticized. Thank you, Saratoga Springs Public Library. 
an awesome, awesome YouTube uh, video that I found by Mina Lee called Unpacking Sickness as a Beauty Trend. An article on uh, the Science Museum magazine called Tuberculosis a Fashionable Disease? Question <laughs> mark. I love the way you read that. That was amazing. Thank you. And then last but not least, Wikipedia. Well, that was, you used a ton of sources. That might be like the most sources I think we've ever used for yeah, an article. Yeah, it's definitely the episode. There was so much science. There was <laughs> a lot. I mean, this was like really like research. So thank good you. Job. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening, weirdos. Please seriously, like check us out on Instagram because I want to hear your thoughts on beauty trends. Right. And also you can see videos that we post mm-hmm. uh, that are like completely separate from the pod. Well, not completely separate. I mean, it is, but you can see. We have more content. Exactly. Thank you. That was much more succinct and way better said. <laughs> That's all right. And weirdos, you've already done this. Gold star for you. If you have not, don't forget to share this podcast, rate, review, subscribe. It helps us grow. Yeah, especially if you're listening on Spotify, hit that bell button so the episodes come to you right away. Yeah. I We have uh, a a friend that works there and she gave us that tip and I've been doing that with the podcast I listen to and it's very helpful. Yeah. So definitely, definitely do that. Well, weirdos, thank you so much for again for listening and until next time. Until next time, weirdos. Adios.